0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: This is indeed Talk the Talk. Happy New Year and welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. Happy New Year to you, Bill Newman. Well, thank you very much. And to you, Dan Torres. To you both as well. Okay, good. We've covered the pleasantries. Let's get to reality. This year is going to begin much as the last year ended with our focus. For better or for worse, on one Donald Trump, and we have with us in the studio Attorney John Pucci, because we think we need to take a long, hard look at what is apt to happen to Donald Trump in 2024. Uh, Bill, I can't think of a better way to
2: start the year than John Pucci.
1: Oh, I could think of a few, but we're going to we're going to we're going to move right along here, nonetheless. Okay. A little fun at John Pucci's expense, I'm I am with Buzz on that. <laughs> John Fucci, of course, is a former uh, U.S. attorney who's head of the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Springfield and for many years has been a white-collar defense attorney as well, a partner in Buckley Richardson, the Western Massachusetts law firm. John, what is the status of the cases against Donald Trump and how do you expect them to turn out and
3: when? Well... Let me say that what's happened in the last week uh, has, has changed the framework and environment and the layout of the cases. So let me start with what happened last week, which was the attorney general in the state of Maine decided that Trump couldn't be on the primary ballot, which is coming up for the Maine uh, Republican primary For president, and that together with the Colorado Supreme Court opinion, which knocked him off the ballot in Colorado for the primary there, those two cases together are going to hit the Supreme Court fast, and I think they're jumping the line of all the other cases that are awaiting him out there. So what's awaiting is of course the insurrection case; it's in the D.C. Court of Appeals. Uh, The 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 trial court process is stayed by the trial court judge. It's still set for trial in March. There's Mar-a-Lago, which is wandering around out there in the netherworld for a trial in May. And there's the Atlanta criminal cases, which are way out there and unscheduled um, for maybe later this year. It's uncertain. But all those cases have been percolating in different ways. But this now, this 14th Amendment issue, which is an odd issue, unexplored in American history, is now jumping the line, and it's going to get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's going to have to decide whether or not Trump, under the 14th Amendment, is prohibited prohibited from becoming running for and being elected president of the United States.
1: Okay, two quick comments, John Pucci. One is we shouldn't forget that there is actually another case pending against Trump, which is the New York indictments for having paid bribes to a porn star to uh, obviate his political problems with that issue. That case is still, it's not even percolating, it's just there.
3: It's become a footnote, Bill.
1: Yes, it is. But
3: I know you're a fine, very refined reader of all things legal, so it is a, It is in existence. Uh, Michael, in, in, that, in that regard, I'll I digress into the area of gossip to say it was revealed last week that Michael Cohen had personally submitted (laughs) case. Now, he's a lawyer. Remember, he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer, yeah. He submitted case law in a civil case he has against Trump, which was generated through AI, artificial intelligence, which was imaginary cases that didn't exist. And the best part of it is when he was asked about it, he agreed. He had done the research. He had given it to his lawyer, and it was his lawyer's fault for not finding that the cases didn't exist. So well, he ratted out his own lawyer. Well, there's
1: some truth to all that. Michael Cohn should not have done what he did, and his lawyer should not have submitted cases that don't exist to a court. After all, when you sign a pleading, a piece of paper for a court as a lawyer, you are saying that this is being, you are saying under the rules, you are certifying that this is done in good faith and with appropriate legal and professional uh, uh,
3: uh,
1: devotion to that piece of paper and what it says.
3: Well, that's fine to say that, but lawyers forever have been citing cases for things they didn't stand for, so it's a fine line. Let's just move on.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, let's look at the difference, if we could for a moment, between the Colorado case and the Maine case. It seems to me that the Maine case, which keeps uh, the Maine decision by the Secretary of State in Maine, which takes... Uh, Trump off the Republican primary ballot, for the time being, because it's going to be challenged in Maine's courts as well. Is a That is a much weaker case against Donald Trump than the Colorado case. There was no trial. It was a decision by one person based on publicly available information. Uh, Trump did not have the due process rights to cross-examine witnesses, to present evidence, to make arguments, and so on. Uh, in Colorado, there was, in fact, a trial, five-day trial, and Due process was given to Trump in that case, and so it seems to me that Colorado is a much more likely case to receive serious consideration uh, by the Supreme Court than the main case in its present status. What do you think?
3: Well, I think that's right. I think the the Colorado case is a better case, a more developed case for the Supreme Court to wrestle with and decide. There was a five-day trial. Trump was a party to the case, so he had his chance to litigate. Uh, he didn't have that in Maine. Uh, it was an administrative ruling, essentially in Maine on the ballot. Um, so it's it's ripe for review. The record is developed below in the appeals court in Colorado. It was a four to three decision. It was a close decision, um, but it's ripe for review, and it's a better case for the Supreme Court to examine. It's the same issue, however, and that is the Fourteenth Amendment and whether it applies to what happened.
1: Well, it's sort of the same issue, John. It's sort of not the same. It's the same issue, yes. What does uh, uh, the third article, of uh, Article 14 of the United States Constitution mean? We'll read it in just a second. That said, it's a different issue because Trump can argue in the main case, Ida was denied due process, and if ever there were a situation where a person is denied due process, it's someone who is a serious candidate for president being uh, eliminated from that possibility. Uh, and I think that's his best argument with Maine and probably one of his arguments with regard to Colorado as well. You, do you, we both are sitting here with our con- uh, Constitution and Buzz too, a copy of the Constitution of the United States. Do you want to read the relevant parts of the third section of Article 14?
3: It would be my pleasure. Oh, please. So just to put this in right context, this was enacted after the Civil War, and that comes into play, and it's very, very important to remember what preceded this amendment to the Constitution. It's not a statute. It's an amendment to the Constitution, the fundamental framework of our government. And it was enacted after the Civil War. And it says— I'm no,
2: sorry, John. Why was it enacted?
3: Well, it was enacted—can I read this first? Okay. Do I have two masters here.
2: Uh, let's
1: move right along. Let's let's hear. So
3: it was enacted. And now we
1: have the Fourteenth Amendment. Is it re- was
3: enacted, Buzz, historically to, pre- to to prevent the Southerners who were now back in the United States to electing uh, Congress people who would then Hector the whole process and maybe create havoc. Uh, who had served in the insurrection in the Civil War on the Southern side, so they wanted to keep the country. Decided they did, those people should not be part of our government, our ruling government, and so they enacted through the constitutional amendment process this prohibition on those on people who who fought for the South uh, from being in Congress. That's essentially what this is about.
2: Insurrectionists, insurrectionists.
3: Yeah, who, yeah, well, you can call yeah, who people insurrect who are deemed insurrectionists, people who are in the southern. Uh, side of the Civil War.
1: I think significantly we should note that the 14th Amendment says nothing about the Civil War. It says nothing about the former slaveholders. It is an amendment to the Constitution for all time.
3: Well, that's 100% true. But in answer to Buzz's question, which is a highly relevant question, you have to consider the historical context in which the language was created to interpret the language. You can't ignore the fact that this was a result of the Civil War. Sure and pretend it was just somehow some think tank which came up with this idea that's not what happened this was 800,000 american americans were killed in the civil war and it was decided that this was a this was something that was essential for to to allow america to go forward putting behind them that insurrection the insurrectionists who had created the war
1: and the intent was to not allow the former southern slaveholders to reassert political primacy in the, again, reunited United States. That was a significant part of it. If you're part of this insurrection, you cannot take over the political branches of government. That was...
3: Right. And so read narrowly, read narrowly, it means that that large group of southerners who fought on the southern side, fought, were actual insurrectionists, armed and fought the Jefferson Davis group, could not be part of the federal uh, government going forward. So you could read this narrowly and say, well, once that generation passed, this, this, really, this amendment really doesn't have any meaning.
1: Except that's not what the amendment says. And of course, we have a Supreme Court now that says we have to give uh, primacy and importance indeed to every word of a statute or the constitutional amendment at issue. Except, of course, when it's the Second Amendment, and we like guns, so we'll just ignore half of it. So that's it.
3: Well, this is the nut here, right? This is the centerpiece. Is it the plain language of this that abides? Or is it the the, the, the intent that abides? How do you read this? And this is the debate you and I are having, is, this, is the same debate that's going to take place in the court. And there are people in the court, and I think the vote is going to come out four to two, it's going to come down to three judges to decide whether this applies to Trump or not. That's going to be the essence of it.
1: Yeah, I I want you to read it. I I also want to say that I don't think this is actually more complicated than the Supreme Court saying, how do we want this to come out, and then we'll reverse engineer the decision to get to the words that will get us to the result that we want. Let's hear the 14th Amendment. So
3: it says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector... Of president and vice president, and here's the the key sentence, it's a phrase, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, and it goes on, who had engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, or given aid to the the enemies thereof. That's the the beginning, the, the, the that's the beginning of the Fourteenth Amendment, and it there's an argument at least that. It clearly applies to Trump, any office, it applies to him taking any office, any office, unlimited, civil, which could be the presidency, or military, could be the commander-in-chief. So on two different prongs of the 14th Amendment, you can ably argue that Trump is precluded from any office, and specifically a civil or military office, and the presidency is both of them. So you can argue on the plain language of this— that he's out, and the Supreme Court of Colorado got it right, and he's precluded by the, the 14th Amendment. Now there's an escape clause here at the end, which is kind of interesting and not something people talk about, but the last sentence says, but Congress may by a vote of two-thirds of each house remove such disability. So the Supreme Court of the United States could conceivably, I'm not suggesting this is going to happen, would conceivably say it applies, he's out, Trump can't be on the ballot, he can't be the president, in the Colorado decisions the right decision, and then Congress could come in and by a two-thirds vote remove that disability. Unlikely, but they could have put, Congress could have put Jefferson Davis back in, in the presidency of the United States under that last clause if they wanted to.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you, you, you mentioned that about Jefferson Davis because There's one part, I'm glad you abbreviated it by not reading every single word, but what you left out is anyone who has taken an oath uh, to support the Constitution of the United States and then participates in an insurrection. It doesn't say someone who hasn't taken that oath is forbidden from being elected to to be an officer in the United States, which might mean that Jefferson Davis, having never sworn allegiance to the United States and its Constitution, may have been elected, even though he was an insurrectionist. But, in my view, Donald Trump, who took an oath to support the Constitution and then was an insurrectionist, would be banned. Did you hear me, United States uh, Supreme Court? Uh, let, 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 Let me get
1: to the nub of this, if I might. Who decides, in your view of the law and the Constitution, John Pucci, who decides... If Trump is an insurrectionist, does every secretary of state get to decide for their state or every election body in an individual state get to decide? Does there not have to be a uh, criminal conviction? Some say there, ha- there must be, but you can't. Otherwise, it's just a willy-nilly up for
3: grabs kind of deci- ad hoc decision making. Who decides? Well, it's going to be Colorado Supreme Court has made that decision. They've determined that he committed insurrection or rebellion against the United States. And that's the stand. That's what they're going to have to decide whether that was justified, whether that was appropriate, whether they adopt that or not on the facts that were before the Colorado Supreme Court. So, in that five day trial that Donald Trump participated in, he resisted on all counts the theory that this applied to him. And that there was even an insurrection or rebellion. And, and and to be fair to Trump, if it's possible, what happened in on January sixth, what everybody calls and we're calling the insurrection, he can is easily distinguishable from the Civil War, of the United you know that happened in the United States. The Civil War was a war. There were eight hundred thousand people were killed in the Civil War. That was certainly a war. That was more than a war. It was more than an insurrection. It was a rebellion. And what happened arguably, Trump can say, on January 6th, was his attempt to reinforce the framework of our government as it exists, to invigorate it and have a legitimate election. And that was his intent. So he was not an insurrectionist or leading a rebellion. He was the opposite. He was trying to institute and recognize the electoral process as he understood it on the facts that he believed were true. That's his that's an argument.
1: It is an argument. The question is again does every state get to decide for itself, whether or not Trump gets on the ballot? It's 50 different decisions because different finders of fact and appliers of, of the law could come to a different conclusion.
3: I think the Supreme Court is going to make its decision. And it's going to be binding on all the states because if it's out in Colorado, then it means no other state can apply this bar to Trump being on the ballot. It's also interesting that it was the Colorado
2: Supreme Court uh, that made the decision in Colorado. In Maine, the Secretary of State says she has the exclusive authority to make the decision.
3: Right.
1: Which is under the state law of Maine and Colorado, respectively. We'll continue our conversation with John Pucci right after this.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
2: Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop.
1: When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime.
2: I'm Tony Warden, President and CEO of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'm excited to announce our partnership with Community Action and our sponsorship of their VITA program.
4: Does this sound like you? You put off filing taxes till April. You're worried about doing something wrong or owing money. Last year, you just paid to have it done. Hi, I'm Rebecca with Community Action, and my team of IRS-certified volunteers want to take the stress out of filing your taxes. The best part? We'll do it for free. If you're a low-income household in Franklin County, Hampshire County, or the North Quabbin, come to one of our VITA tax clinics. Thanks to support from Greenfield Cooperative Bank, we're offering appointments in more places than ever. Have your taxes prepared in Greenfield, Northampton, Orange, or where. Make an appointment by visiting communityaction.us slash taxes or calling 413-376-1136. Don't pay to get the money you are owed. File for free with VITA.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with attorney John Pucci, a segment we call Crime and Punishment. The question here today is Trump's crime and what punishment? We were talking while we were off air about how the Supreme Court is going to come out on this. Issue when whether or not Trump engaged in insurrection, whether or not states can disqualify him from being on the ballot, and whether or not the Supreme Court will take that issue head on. And John Pucci, you gave an analysis of how the nine Supreme Court justices are going to come out on this. It seems to me that the Supreme Court is again, as I noted before, going to reverse engineer, here's the decision we want to come to, which in my opinion is Trump should be on the ballot, um, and then they'll come up with justifications for why the states do not have the authority to prevent him from appearing on a primary ballot. Although, interestingly, the question is in uh, some states where this is percolating, this issue is percolating, the, the decisions have been, well, he can't be kept off the primary ballot, but we're reserving Reserving judgment on the question of whether he could be kept off the general election ballot So why is the Supreme Court not going to simply say hey here are all these reasons why the, uh, the third? Uh, uh, section of article 14 doesn't apply and uh, he can be on the ballot end of story. Let's move on Why isn't that what's gonna well, happen
3: you are just reverse engineering from a cynical perspective you know, where you think the Supreme Court isn't going to make a political decision, and they're just going to back into the law on it. And it's that's not crazy. I mean, they're political people. They all went through political processes to become Supreme Court justices. We saw it in Bush v. Gore. And, and they so can
1: and they can write anything they want because there's no binding precedent. They don't even have to go through the charade of Roe was wrongly decided. Fifty years of law is wrong. We know this in our heart of hearts and in our brain of brains. We know wrong Roe was wrong um, because they just know it. Um, here there is no precedent. They don't have to reverse anything. They're writing on a blank slate, so they can do whatever they want.
3: Well, there, there's precedent in a different way, not with a capital P, but there's precedent to, for, for what happened for this, for what happened in the year 2000 in Bush versus Gore. Because in Bush versus Gore, a Supreme Court, that came down to the wire on the election. The election was a bit of a toss-up. I think Gore was behind by a couple hundred votes in the entire state of Florida. The electoral vote was locked down. Who won Florida was going to win the election. The Florida Supreme Court in a series of very complex uh, decisions, determined that there should be a final recount, and the recount should be completed. And that was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And within three days, three days, the Supreme Court took the case, granted a stay uh, uh, of the electoral counting process. They stopped the recount. They They stopped stopped the recount by issuing a stay And the time ran out to have the recount, and at that moment in time, Bush was ahead by 200 votes, and Bush became president. So they jumped in with both feet, five to four decision, and decided and handed the presidency to George Bush, and the history is what it is. And
1: your comment, John Pucci, I think proves my point, which is the Supreme Court in that decision said, here it is. Bush, you're the president— uh, we're going to invent a new legal theory that makes you the president having to do with uh, equal protection and voting. And then they say, but never cite this case to us ever again. It's not really based on anything. We're making it up. Bush, you're president. Here we go. We get to decide. We're the Supreme Court. One of the most dishonest, disingenuous, and I think reprehensible decisions in the well, history of the I, court.
2: I, I agree with that. But, John Pucci, I just want to remind listeners that the Florida Supreme Court made its judgment under uh, the Florida Constitution which required that recount. And the United States Supreme Court, a bunch of states' rights judges said, uh, nah, forget your Constitution. We, there's just not enough time to do it. It's, it's not neat. Uh, and therefore, George W. Bush will be president. Well,
3: you're both right. The, the Supreme Court has com- almost completely, if not completely, turned over since the year 2000. I think there are four judges this is going to com- come down to on this Supreme Court, um, they're all conservatives in the conservative camp, but not all of them are completely without principle, like uh, Clarence Thomas. Um, and Alito. And Alito. Those, forget those people. I mean, you, there's no point even inviting them to the party to have the discussion with. Don't have them on your show. You know what they're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Roberts, I think, is a genuine, uh, you know, is, has, has some integrity. It's been a war for him. I think Gorsuch is an independent I think Barrett is a bit of a follower, and Kavanaugh is going to blow with the wind. But there are people in that court that are different, that are different than the 5-4 to four loss in Bush v. Gore, and they could come out in a different direction.
1: Well, Chief Justice John Roberts is an institutionalist. He really cares about the status and stature of the Supreme Court. He does not want to go down in history as the chief justice who destroyed the integrity and the standing and stature of the Supreme Court which leads me to the conclusion that what he would like to get in these cases uh, is a decision that is overwhelming, preferably from his point of view, unanimous, nine to nothing, seven to two would do, five to four, not so much. I, I think puts the, the Supreme Court really in the crosshairs of the uh, country and history if it comes out with a split decision on Trump your view on that?
3: Well, it was it was five to four in Bush v. Gore, and here we are 23 years later, and it's, it was good law. Bush was president. We had the Iraq War. I mean, the world could be a very different place today if it was Gore, not Bush president, but history has evolved, and this is where we're at. There's another case I would, to your point about unanimity, the value of unanimity in a powerful case, not a split decision here, is the Nixon case on the tapes. The Supreme Court voted nine to nothing, nine to nothing, to force Richard Nixon to produce the tapes that implicated him and led to his, in the criminal behavior that led to his losing the office and ultimately being pardoned and removed. But that nine to nothing decision was a resounding decision that had tremendous impact and value for invigorating the constitutional order we have in the United States. A five to four decision here will be a decision that'll abide, but it won't settle in the same way. It just won't do that. But you gotta take what you can get. It's nine people is an odd number for a reason. If, if if Trump's out five to four, I don't think anyone in this room is gonna regret that it was only a five to four. They're gonna be happy that it went the way that they think it should go, me included.
1: You really think that's possible? I find it almost unimaginable that this Supreme Court is gonna keep Donald Trump off the ballot in any state. We'll find out. And we'll leave it there. We have been speaking with Attorney John Pucci. We really appreciate his insights on this segment, Crime and Punishment. Thank you, Attorney John Pucci. Really, really helpful to have your views today. And Happy New Year.
3: Thanks for being here, and Happy New Year to you.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
4: Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. The owners of Treehouse Brewery have responded to the lawsuit filed late last year by a minority stakeholder who claims he has not been fairly compensated for his initial investment. A lawyer representing the majority owners, Nathan Lanier and Damien Goudreau, claim that the investor Eric Granger has received about $850,000 in profits after his initial $10,000 investment. Granger claims the two owners have paid themselves excessive salaries and spent $16 million on real estate undisclosed to other investors. The company denies any wrongdoing and has requested a trial by jury. The Pioneer Valley Regional School District should consolidate its three school buildings into one that serves students from preschool through 12th grade. That's according to consultants from Cannon Design, who presented their preliminary assessment to the school committee last month. The plan would involve closing Burniston and Northfield Elementary schools and sending all students to Pioneer Valley Regional School. A student representative at the meeting indicated that many students are in support of the consolidation, the Greenfield Recorder reported but a community survey last fall indicated that many people would prefer to see the schools stay open. A full report outlining the consultant's findings is expected to be released in January. Holyoke City Councilors will consider an order at tonight's meeting to place a temporary moratorium on new cannabis retail businesses. The rapid expansion of the marijuana growing and retail industry in Holyoke has led to the development of the city's industrial sector, while other parts of the city haven't seen the same kind of growth. This has led to some lower-income neighborhoods being saturated with these businesses and often smelling like cannabis, according to City Councilor Israel Rivera. An ordinance proposed by Rivera would temporarily halt the opening of any new cannabis businesses until the council can consider zoning changes that may allow for retail businesses to open in other parts of the city. The City Council meets tonight at 7 p.m.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP.
2: Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
3: Don't miss out on limited time appliance deals during the closeout event at Lowe's. For a limited time, get up to 35% off select major appliances. Plus, get an additional 20% off in-store clearance appliances. Hurry, these deals are too good to last long. Shop in-store or online today. Because Lowe's knows deals. Lowe's knows home improvement. Valid 12-28-23-13-24. Selection varies by location. While supplies last. See Lowe's.com for details. This holiday season,
4: Capital
2: One reminds you to give yourself the gift of 1.5% cash back with the Capital One Quicksilver card.
0: Can I earn 1.5% cash back on birds? Birds? What if you sent your true love to turtle doves plus a partridge in a pear tree? Sure, but why would
2: anyone want that? The song was very convincing. Earn 1.5% cash
3: back on all your holiday purchases with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply, see CapitalOne.com for details.
0: Get takeout? Save 30%. Get candles? Or hit the links? Save 30%. Dog grooming? Outdoor recreation? Burritos? Save 30%. The Shop 30 Store. Full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store. Open right now at whmp.com.